We are, we are uh, in the book of Romans, just finishing up chapter 1. But let me start by reading again this verse from Isaiah. Isaiah 55, verse 8 and 9. Isaiah 55, verse 8 and 9. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my ways... Nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. So he says that God, his ways are different than our ways, his thoughts are different than our, our thoughts, and they're higher, they're better. All right. So remember, our thoughts are corrupt, his are not. So if you have, if we have in our mind... An idea, if we have in our mind an idea on how things should be or some image of what God must be like, oh, I wouldn't think that God would do such and such, there's a good chance we're wrong because His ways are different than our ways and His thoughts are different than our thoughts. They're different. They're higher, they're better. So if we don't understand why God would do something, the thing is that his ways are higher than our ways. So with that, let's summarize chapter 1 because we have spent, this would actually be the 10th week that we're touching on chapter 1 of the book of, of, of Romans, Romans chapter 1. And let me summarize. Now remember what we've just covered in this portion was, was God's, God's appeal and speaking about the Gentile, the pagan Gentile. Now he, he mentions Greeks. Greeks are often synonymous with Gentile in the New Testament. Paul uses often, and he refers to Greek, and, and uh, he talks about the Greeks and the Jews, meaning the Gentiles and the Jews. And then the Greeks like to distinguish themselves. There were in, in verse 14, he talks about this. Uh, uh, I am under obligation both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So you had Greeks, and they distinguished themselves from being the educated and the refined Greeks from what they called barbarians. We would call them pagans in this day. So he distinguished them, them in this way. This first portion that we talked about in verses 18 through 32 that we covered in detail now has been primarily, this is to the pagan, and uh, um, he says, he says uh, uh, the, the things that, that we learned is he tells us four things. Number one, they had a degree of knowledge that was revealed to them. And we see that in verse 19. In verse 19 he says, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident within them. God made it evident to them. So if we feel that God never really revealed himself strong enough to the pagan world, to the world. The Bible disagrees. God disagrees. He says, I, I gave them everything they needed. I gave them absolutely everything they needed. Remember, his ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. If in our impression, the world doesn't have enough of a witness, that impression is wrong. They have plenty of witness. The witness has been given to them. And, and uh, uh, we see that in verse 19. Secondly, in verse 21, for a while they knew the truth ex- uh, uh, um, uh, by experience. They, they, they knew this uh, experientially in, in verse 21 because it says, um, for even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks. Even though they knew Him as God. They, they knew it. They absolutely knew it. So 
Remember, I came to the Lord at the age of 18, so I have to think back a lot of years to think, what was it like before I knew the Lord? But I was thinking about God. I remember even as a boy, I was thinking about God. There are things that He drops into people's lives. He gives enough of a witness. And it says, but they did not honor Him as God or give thanks in verse 21. Remember the things that we need to do. We need to honor Him as God and we need to give thanks. That's what we need to be able to do. Honor Him as God and give thanks. To those who do not know God, the path to knowing Him is to honor Him, to acknowledge His existence, and to give thanks. And that brings us closer, brings them closer and closer. When we stop acknowledging, when they stop acknowledging and giving thanks, they move further and further away. It says, but that they... They did not honor Him as God or give thanks. And then it starts talking about the progression, about how they moved away. So so this honoring and giving thanks is, is really essential. Thirdly, they knew that they were repudiating this knowledge. So if you look in verse 28, And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer. They didn't see fit to acknowledge Him. So they were repudiating the knowledge that He gave them. And uh, fourthly, they understood to some degree the result of their rejection in verse 32. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death. The Bible says that God has revealed to people that if they do not follow this right way, they are worthy of death. They are worthy of eternal separation from God. God has revealed that to them. God has done that. So he's done all of that for them. Um, and and uh, um, then we're told other things. Uh, in their rejection of the truth, we're told that, that this has certain steps as well. First, they exchange the glory of God into idolatry in verses 19 through 23. Secondly, they exchange the truth of God for a lie in verse 25. And then thirdly, they gave up the knowledge of God after evaluating it in verse 28. They willingly gave up the knowledge of God after evaluating it. And with this, with these passages, we see the way God deals with individuals and the way that He deals with nations. That He simply, at some point, gives them up. At some point, you say, God never really gives up. Well, the Bible says that He turns people over. Remember, we, we, we talked about that. He turned them over. He turned them over. Multiple times, He says He turned them over. At least three times he turned them over, which means it's not a passive thing. It is actively turning them over and making it worse for them as a result of their 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 attitudes. And uh, uh, this is what we see. We see that man begins to lower God into his own image. So this this taking of God and lowering it into his own image and you start worshiping man and then you start worshiping all the, the created things around that. Uh, and, and then that moves into uh, a problem with sexual immorality, promiscuity, promiscuity, and a preoccupation with sex. And uh, uh, we certainly see that throughout uh, cultures. Uh, and then, then it, it moves on in that way, and then finally gives, God gives them up totally to some kind of judgment or fall. This is what we see in this portion. So again, if this does not sit well with you, remember, God's ways are higher than your ways. His thoughts are higher than your thoughts. He's doing what's right. You're not doing what's right. If you don't view this as proper, because His ways are higher than our ways. 
And, and uh, uh, so what lessons can we draw from this? First of all, we can learn that there is enough knowledge available in nature for appreciation of his gratitude. There is enough there. I think what I see, what I see in, in, in the chemical world is just amazing. What I see in a biological system, you know, you just have to stand back. And, and I get to see this much differently than the, than the man or the woman on the street because of my knowledge of chemistry. And when I look at this, I think, how can people look at this and ever go away from this and not see God in this? When you, when you try to synthesize molecules, you really learn how molecules respond, what they do, what they don't do. And then you look at a biological system, you're like, wow, this is amazing. How can that happen? How do you build something like this? How do you do it? And, and so he has given us all that we need. There's enough knowledge in nature to have appreciation and gratitude, to be able to acknowledge him and to thank him. There's enough there. Secondly, we learn that in spite of secular anthropology, which tells us that people went from being polytheistic to monotheistic, the Bible reverses it. We learn that we went from being monotheistic to polytheistic, went from worshiping God to worshiping the images and then the things created. And uh, thirdly, uh, uh, we learn that, that uh, um, God will punish sin, and sometimes he punishes sin by allowing more sin to come into a life. Okay, you want to do that? You're going to be put over even more. Go ahead, enjoy yourself, knock yourself out. That's often the way he responds to sin and rebellion, is he says, okay, he give you on over even deeper. And we learn, we learn another thing that the, that, uh, the concept of a proper missions is even that the most degraded of men still have some knowledge of God, uh, because there's a conscience in man that bears witness to them. And we're going to see that in chapter 2, verse 14 and 15, where it talks about the conscience. Um, so, and then we also notice from this that uh, knowledge by itself does not keep them from committing sins worthy of judgment. Knowledge alone doesn't do it. And so, so we see that in verse 32. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but they give hearty approval to those who practice them. So just a knowledge of things. And I, and I see this, you know, sometimes there's these fundraisers for... You know, education in the third world, which is not bad. But that is not the solution to the problems of mankind. Education is not the solution. Look, I, I work in the education system. I went to college at the age of 18, and I've never left. I've been there ever since. So I know that atmosphere. If you don't have God, you can actually become even more dastardly in the things that you do. You get more sophisticated ways of committing sin. And so, so um, uh, knowledge in itself does not deal with it. Does not because knowledge in itself does not give a hatred for sin. Okay. So now what we're going to do is we're going to look now at chapter two of the book of Romans, the book of Romans, and we're going to start reading from chapter two. Therefore, you have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment, for in that you judge another, you condemn yourselves. For you who judge practice the same things. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. But you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same, yourself, 
that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that it's the kindness of God that leads you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Okay, so in verse 1 it says, you are without excuse. So now he switches from the pagan, now he's going to go right after the 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 Greek who's the sophisticated Greek. So now he's, he's changing it and he's going after the cultured Greek. He says... Therefore, you have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment. For in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. Well, why would it be that if I judge another, I'm condemning myself? And he tells us, for you who judge, practice the same things. The key here is, it is not so much the judgment itself, it's the judgment while you're practicing the exact same thing. You're doing the same thing. And he comes with the same concept in verse 2. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. And then in verse 3, And do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? So he takes the cultured Greek and he says, You're doing exactly what they're doing. You're no different. You're passing judgment on them and saying, look at what they're doing. That is just terrible. Paul says, oh, you do the same thing. You do exactly the same thing. And that's what he's saying. He says that that, uh, uh, what they do, you do. And Jesus talks about this. Jesus Jesus mentioned this in the context of Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 5. He says, Do not judge so that you will not be judged. For in the way that you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that's in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, behold, there's a log in your own eye. You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So he's not making an assessment on judgment, he's making an assessment on judgment when you're doing the same thing. So this is Jesus' picture, this is not my picture, here's Jesus' picture. I have a log, a log, imagine this, there's a log coming out of my eye. And I've got these forceps, and I'm saying, let me take the speck out of your eye. You'd be like, (laughs) that's Jesus' picture. Then he says, first take the log out of your eye, then you'll see clearly enough to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So he doesn't say, don't ever pass judgment and take a speck out of your brother's eye. He says, go ahead and do it. But first... Notice the log in your own eye. Did you know who I am most prone to judge? It's people who have the same problems that I do. I notice my problems in other people. I notice things that I don't like about myself. Things that I don't like about myself, whether it be looks or attitudes. I notice those first in other people. I notice them in other people. And so the things that we struggle with, we notice first in other people. And this is what Jesus is getting at, and this is what Paul is getting at. He says that, that the problem here is not that you're, you're, you're making a judgment call. 
is that you're suffering with the same thing. You practice the same thing again and again and again. He says you practice the same thing in verse 1. You you practice such things in verse 2. You do the same thing in verse 3. Again and again, you practice such things yourself. So then he, he, he just nails them. And he says, you're not going to escape the judgment of God. This whole portion, starting at, at, at uh, um, in chapter 1 at verse, verse um, 18, it's just all about judgment. And I told you, this is foreign to me because I don't see God as a God of judgment. He absolutely is a God of judgment. The Bible says He is. The Bible says He is. But I don't see Him that way. But here it just nails it. He says he's a God of judgment. Do you think you're going to escape the end of verse 3? That you will escape the judgment of God? And then he inserts verse 4. And then he has verse 5 again. uh, The judgment. Verse 5. But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. So, bookend, bookended between, between, you have three and five, you have this insertion of verse four. Verse four says, or do you think lightly, every other translation, so I'm reading out of the New American Standard, every other translation, I'd read the Geneva translation, which predates, predates the King James translation by more than a hundred years. So I, and I read that because I'd like to see you know, what were people thinking about when they weren't influenced by the culture that I'm in? I read the King James Version, I read the Young's Literal Version, and the New International Version along with this. And every other version, it, it, this says, Or do you think lightly of the riches of this kindness? This is a very, very... It, it's, it's not impactful enough according to the other, other, other versions. It's, do you despise the riches of God? Most other versions use the word despise or contempt. Do you have contempt for? Do you despise the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience? Not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance. The kindness of God leads us to repentance. And this is why I always start with the verses of mercy when I share faith, my faith with an unbeliever. I'll always start with the verses of mercy. It is the kindness of God that draws us to repentance. His kindness draws us to repentance. It's His kindness. And this is why Jesus says, Come to me, all ye who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come to me. Come to me is the message of the gospel. This is the message of the gospel. Come to me. This over and over again is this message that that, that He says, Come to me. And... and uh, um, Jesus said in John chapter 6, verse 37, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. All that the Father has given me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. In Revelation chapter 22, remember, that's the last book of the Bible. And very close to the last part of the last book, in Revelation twenty-two seventeen. He says this, The Spirit of the Bride says, Come. And let the one who hears say, Come. And let the one who is thirsty, Come. Let the one who wishes take the water of life without cost. Jesus has paid for this. 
He wraps up the entire Bible with these same words. Come, come to me, come to me. Come, let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who wishes to take the water of life, let him take it without any cost. There's no cost for you. He says this over and over again. That's why my invitation to the lost starts with this. It starts with the kindness of God. It's the kindness of God that draws people to repentance. Clearly, the kindness of God is the, is the thing that draws people to repentance. But you know, there's, there's, there's a, there's a whole nother set of, of verses that talk about the judgment of God and the things of God that, that are going to come upon people. And, and, uh, um, it is a frightening thing because God has a role of judgment. And sometimes, in my sharing, people don't come to Him through all these verses of kindness and welcoming. And then I have to go and show the other side of God that is very strong. There are words that are very strong. So in Isaiah chapter 14, verses 9 through 11, Isaiah chapter 14, verse 9 through 11, there is a description of hell. There's a description of the afterlife. I wonder what hell would be like. Well, read the Bible and it'll tell you. Isaiah chapter 14, verse 9, and we're going to, 9 through 11, I'll skip a little bit in the middle, but it says, The realm of the dead below is all astir to meet you at your coming. Oh, they're going to welcome me to hell. How wonderful that is. Okay, well, let's see what it says. It rouses the spirits of the departed to greet you. That's nice. And they will say to you, You also have become weak as we are. You've become like us. All your pomp has been brought down to the grave, along with the noise of your harps. Maggots are spread out beneath you, and worms cover you. Uh-oh. That's what hell looks like. That's what awaits the person who does not know God. See, I don't believe God would really send anybody to hell. I, well, because your tastes and your knowledge is corrupt. God says that's what happens. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts and his ways are higher than our ways. This is the description of what it's like for the unbeliever. They're going to be greeted, all right, and they'll be greeted with this word. Let me show you. Maggots are spread out beneath you. That bed right there, See all those maggots on the ground? That's where you sleep. You sleep on top of them. And worms cover you. So then a covering of worms comes over you. That's what awaits the unbeliever. That's what awaits those who have had plenty, plenty of testimony in the world, enough to have at least given them something to appreciate God and give thanks to Him for it. That's, there are these things that await them. Jesus talks about this. Jesus describes hell for us. In Mark chapter 9, verse 48, Jesus says, Where the worms that eat them do not die and the fire is not quenched. So remember those, those worms that were covering them? You may think, well, I'll just kill them all. They don't die. Uh oh. The worms don't die. You can't kill them. That's what Jesus said, where the worms that eat them do not die. And actually, Jesus tells us a little bit more. 
those worms, they're going to be eating you. They're going to be eating you. This is what awaits the unbeliever. What keeps the unbeliever from coming to God? What would keep them from coming to God? Think about this. God has given you sufficient testimony. He's given you sufficient testimony in this world that you know that God exists. There's sufficient there for His for appreciation and there's sufficiency for you to have given Him thanks. And then when you do that, when you respond to that, He sends somebody to give you the gospel by which you can be saved. When you don't respond to that and you start making God into your own image and lowering Him into your own image, that's when you start drifting away all the more. And he gives you over, again and again he gives you over in this rebellion. Why would you turn from him? Why would you stay away from him? How long is it? How messed up does your life have to get before you'll turn to him? Goes on in the book of Revelation chapter 21 verse 8. Talks about what the afterlife is going to be like for those that don't know God. In Revelation chapter 21 verse 8. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. Remember Jesus talked about a fire? This is the fire. It's a fiery lake of burning sulfur. In some Bibles it's translated brimstone. Brimstone is sulfur. If you've never seen a sulfur fire, go on YouTube and and look at a sulfur fire. It's beautiful to look at. It's just this amazing pool. The sulfur melts. It has a low melting point. So it melts and turns into a pool. And the fire, it's not like the whole the whole pool. You know, you can see big sulfur fires. It's not all on fire at once. You, you'll have a fire. And then what happens is there's so much sulfur dioxide coming out of that because it, it oxidizes the sulfur to sulfur dioxide that it starts quenching the fire. So what the fire does is it moves in order to keep burning. And then the sulfur dioxide concentration gets too high, so the fire starts just moving around the lake. And so it's this lake of fire, and the fire just kind of moves all over. And um, that's what the fire is like. You know, and it, and it says, but the cowardly, the cowardly. It takes something to stand up and to come to Jesus. It does. It does. It takes something to stand up and to come to Jesus. I mean, there are many people that don't come from Christian families that when they become believers, it's not easy for them. But remember, the cowardly are going to end up in the lake of fire. This encourages me. When people say things about me, and I feel like, well, maybe I should just back off a little bit. The Bible says no. The cowardly go into the lake of fire. I'm like, I don't want to go into the lake of fire. Cowardly is not what we should be. We should go right back at it. The unbelieving, the vile, this is Revelation 21, verse 8. The murderers, the sexually immoral. Those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars. I was once sharing with a man, he was in his 70s. He said, you know, you know, look, a lot of people have shared with me, I don't think it'll do any good. I said, give me a chance. And I shared with him all the nice verses, all about Jesus saying, come. Wouldn't budge. Then I listed out all of these things, and he says, yeah, these, these people are really bad, you know. Cowardly, unbelieving, vile, murderers. Murderers deserve to go there. 
So he says here, all liars. He said, have you, have you ever told a lie? He said, not a big lie. I said, well, you're caught. He says, all liars. All liars. Not just big liars. Big liars. All liars. If you are not covered in the blood of Jesus Christ, this is where you're going to end up. And you know what that did? That caught the man. And he gave his life to Jesus that day. Because he realized he was among this group that was going into the lake of fire. Revelation chapter 20 verse 15 says, And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. There is a destiny for humankind that does not acknowledge God. There's a destiny. And that's where you're going to end up. How far are you going to have to go? Because remember, the more you allow this thing to get away, the more God gives you over. The more rope he gives you to hang yourself. Turn. I urge you, don't stay away from him. Turn. Because he commands us to come to him. In 1 John 3.23 it says, This is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ. This is his commandment. He commands you to come. This day he commands you. It is a commandment from God. He's not just saying, oh, would you please come? He commands you. You are commanded this day to come to him. Commanded this day to get saved. He bookends this verse 4 in Romans chapter 2. That the kindness of God draws you to repentance with judgment on either side. God in his mercy, he comes in with these occasional things in the midst of judgment. comes in with these occasional words. It's the kindness of God that will draw you to repentance. He urges you to come. Come to Him this day. Why would you stay away from Him? How many marriages do you have to go through? How many broken sets of children do you have to have before you'll come to Him? How many times do you have to go from one job to another because you couldn't get along with people? How far bad does your life have to get before you'll come to Him? He commands you this day. You may say, well, you know, is now really the time? The Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 2, Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. It's the acceptable time, and the acceptable time is now. You may say, well, you know, we shouldn't rush this thing. The Bible says in Psalm 119 verse 60, I made haste and I did not delay to keep your commandments. As soon as God commands us, we are to do it. We're not to think about it. We're not to pray about it. We're just to do it. There's, there's, you're not supposed to go home and pray about this. You're supposed to come to Him this day. This is the message that He has for us. There is this mercy, and He says, come. Or, you'll get to a certain point. He'll just release. He just releases. That's what it says here. He just releases it. And it says in Hosea chapter 4, verse 17... He has joined the idols. Leave him alone. God just gave up on the guy. He says, look, he's just joined the idols. Leave him alone. Or maybe, maybe the judgment has already been set. Like in Isaiah chapter 38 verse 1. Set your house in order, for you shall die and not live. Maybe the judgment has already gone out. Maybe it's already gone out. How far do you have to get before you'll turn to him? And that's why he urges us to come to him. Because as it says in Romans chapter 6, which we'll cover at some point, verse 23, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. There's a free gift that comes in Jesus Christ. There's a free gift in Him. It is the kindness of God 
that is drawing you this day to repentance. There is a fire that awaits those who do not come. I urge you this day, do not stay away from God. And just remember, all these family members that we have that are, you know, the basically nice folks. That's great. I'm glad they are. But without the gospel, there is no salvation. Without the acceptance that Jesus has died for my sins, that he was buried and he was raised from the dead, the resurrection of Christ, without that, we cannot do it. Without that, there is no coming to him. Because it says in Romans 10.9, that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It's through that act, it's through this act, that we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead. And you have everything you need to believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Everything has already been given. God would never require that as a step for salvation. He would never require it it, if it were unattainable. Because he's placed the truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ in the heart of every man and every woman. The truth of the resurrection is already there. Will you receive it? One day I, I was meeting with a very famous chemistry professor. And he was in his 80s. And he was not in real great shape. And <clears throat> But anyway, I, I shared the gospel with him over lunch. I asked him to come to lunch with me. <clears throat> I shared the gospel with him in the faculty club. And uh, um, he couldn't receive it. He said, Jim, when we die, we, we just change frequency. You know, that's, what's a chemist going to say, you know? <clears throat> we just change frequency. Well, then about 10 years later... He was really in pretty bad shape. He couldn't get to the faculty club for lunch. He had had some amputation because of diabetes. He had some toes removed and different things. And so I said, how about, we were in the same building. I said, how about we just meet in the conference room for lunch? I'll bring my lunch, you bring your lunch. And so we did that. And I shared with him again. And I said, John, do you remember about 10 years ago I shared this message of Jesus with you? And I shared with you about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, how he's risen from the dead. And you told me, well, when we die, we just change frequency. I said, when Jesus died, he came alive again. He rose from the dead. I said, John, do you believe that? He said, you know, if it's Jesus, I can believe it that Jesus rose from the dead. If it's Jesus, I believe it. And I just rejoiced. I just rejoiced. Two weeks later, he died. There is salvation in Jesus Christ in the acceptance that he is Lord and that he has risen from the dead. Don't waste your life. The truth of the resurrection is already there. The truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That truth is already in your heart. He would never require it as a step for salvation if it were unattainable. If he didn't place that truth on our heart already. How can any thinking man or woman ever believe in a physical resurrection? We've never seen such a thing with our eyes. Because that truth of Jesus rising from the dead is already on our heart. I urge you this day to come to him. I urge you this day.
This day you say with me, I believe that Jesus is Lord, and I believe that he's risen from the dead. And if you are saying that for the first time and really believing that, send me an email. Just just write to me. Send me an email, tour at rice.edu. Let me know, because I want to know, and you owe that to me, to let me know. All right? Let's pray. Abba, Father, I thank you so much for your mercies and grace that even surrounded in your judgment is this kindness of God which draws men to repentance. Thank you, Lord God. Father, I pray that this very day that any unbelievers that should hear this message would turn their lives over and to say, I believe Jesus is Lord and that he has risen from the dead. Thank you, Lord God. Oh, Lord Jesus, you have made the way. Blessed Lord Jesus, blessed be your name. You are so good in every way. Forever and ever may I proclaim the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God for salvation to all who believe. It is the power of God. Thank you, Lord, for the power of God for salvation, that Jesus Christ has died for our sins. He was buried and he rose from the dead on the third day. Thank you, Lord, for the truth of the gospel. Forever, forever, Lord, may I preach that word, that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. Glory be to his name. Father, drive that through to our hearts that there's salvation in Jesus and in him only. Glory be to your name. Thank you, Lord God. Amen.